Hello, folks. I guess we're going to get started. Um, uh, once again, uh, this is regarding the book Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. And uh, let me just uh, tell you personally what interested me about the book. First, I read uh, quite a few of Barbara Kingsolver's no novels, um, and I enjoyed her writing style very much. And then someone recommended this particular title to me, uh, as being of interest due to uh, gardening and some of my interest in eating uh, local and seasonal produce. So I have to admit that um, the book was fabulous. I I'm not going to hold back. Uh, I thought the book was, was a 10 out of 10 as far as I was concerned. Uh, and I'd like to hear uh, from any of you who have read it already just so that we know who has, uh, has already read the title. This is Mary Ellen Earls from Scottsdale, Arizona, and I haven't finished it, but I can tell you from personal experience, for the last seven years, I've been eating local ingredients, uh, supporting the local farmers, and going back to my home in Cincinnati and eating regular old supermarket stuff. It's, I mean, there's a world of difference and, uh, you know, most people say, oh, you can't tell the difference. Well, you really can. And uh, the vegetables are just so much better um, grown locally, and they're just so much fresher. Thanks, Mary Ellen. Uh, yes, the first two chapters basically deal with their, the family and their move from Arizona to uh, uh, southwestern uh, Virginia to a farm that had been in uh, her husband's family. I believe, and, and how they set up house. Uh, when they first arrived in Virginia, uh, Ms. Kingsolver relates that they did not uh, immediately uh, make this vow to eat local for one year. They, they set up the house for about a year and prepared their gardens and, and got the place in order. And then after about a year, they decided that they've been talking about the idea of doing this book for at least six years at that point, and they wanted to actually put the project into action. So for one year, they vowed to not eat anything that they could not uh, acquire within one hour's drive of their home. This is Bonnie Blos in Ohio, and I live on a farm, so I am well aware that there are many people here who grow their own food and uh, grow as much of it as they possibly can. Uh, I can certainly say that in my experience there isn't anything like uh, chicken uh, when chickens are raised that way and eggs are absolutely along with vegetables wonderful I know uh, a woman who makes the best uh, deviled eggs with uh, vegetables uh, from chickens that she raises and uh, they're absolutely wonderful and I think that in the era we live in now, this is important, not just for health, but for economy. A lot of people where I live can vegetables, um, and that's a, that's a big part of the process, and they do all kinds of vegetables. They even do um, sauce and that sort of thing, as well as jams and jellies and things like that. Uh, coming from an area here in southeastern uh, Pennsylvania, uh, where we are known for uh, our rural communities, our Amish communities. Uh, we're known for canning and preserving around here. Uh, we have a lot of farm families that, uh, that have been doing this for generations. I'm proud to say I come from two farming families that mainly raised grain crops but also had uh, dairy products uh, at one time. And uh, you can't get away from the culture here in this area 
but I imagine it, it varies greatly as you go across the country. Uh, anyone else speak to whether anyone does canning and preserving in other areas of the country? Okay, well, if we move along to another idea that was a real stunner for me. Um, as Ms. Kingsolver uh, speaks in the book about the idea of a vegetannual, that was a term I'd never heard before. Uh, but basically what she's talking about is being aware of the idea that that produce has a certain season that it follows. So for something like lettuce or spinach, where we eat the leaves, those come on early in the year, as opposed to something uh, like strawberries, where you have a flowering plant and then the berry comes on uh, after, the, after the bloom. And she speaks of the vegetannual as a way to understand what's coming into season at what time. You know if it's a, a fruiting object that you need to come uh, later in the year than something that just produces its crop of leafy greens early in the spring. Um, so that's something I think we are alienated from because when we go to the grocery store, we can get any product at any time and we don't really realize what is available uh, at its peak uh, because it's available all year round. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mary Ellen. Oh, excuse me, but the uh, hedge trimmers are going in the background here. But uh, the food, when you eat it in season, just simply tastes so much better. Um, w this uh, concern I buy from is called Boxed Greens, and it has a section that that lists the seasonal vegetables and what's in season and I usually when I go up there I I go to there so that I am guaranteed the freshest ingredients and one time I did an experiment where I bought some asparagus that they had in October and it was just it had no taste to it at all uh, compared to the asparagus grown in April um, so it's just so much better to eat seasonally. And then you have something to look forward to. The other thing, too, and a guest on Books and Beyond, my show, pointed this out. If, as a blind person, you know when vegetables uh, will, will uh, be ripe, uh, when fruit is ripe and when vegetables um, come into season, um, you will be able to pretty much tell when your um, when your food is ready when you're growing food and there's an order to it um, there is a cycle to it you plant things at certain times um, it's very connected with nature as I'm sure Barbara Kingsolver points out in this book um, that you do certain things maybe after a certain holiday or before uh, before a certain time and um, people where I live and I live in quite a big Amish area too um, really do follow those precepts uh, they really believe that you wait for a certain time if you plant a crop before a certain time um, it, nature doesn't <laughs> doesn't forgive that you have to do it when the time is right well I wanted to say that see I live in an apartment so so I can't grow my own food or anything but I, I go to a produce store that sells nothing but produce it's not the big chain grocery stores. And, um, and because I live in Florida, the, the seasons are different than they are 
where uh, most of you guys live. And so, like, now we get um, a lot of the vegetables in the winter, whereas you guys, it comes out in the summer. So it's, it's a little bit different here. And, and that's where I go and shop for vegetables because, I don't know, if you get it in the supermarket, it's, it's terrible, especially the fruits. They are so terrible. The, the peaches are as hard as a rock. Whereas here, they're wonderful. Something that was a shock to me uh, was, was the whole idea of just how much uh, gasoline and oil it uses to ship the produce around the country. At one point in the book, um, uh, Barbara's husband, uh, Stephen, mentions that to transport one calorie of fruit, I believe he said from California uh, to New York, it takes 87 calories of energy which calories are a unit of energy to begin with. Uh, but that's a real shock to me. That's, that's a tremendous expenditure of resources uh, just to move produce around the country. And while I always thought that it was a sign of progress that we could have anything we wanted at any time that we wanted, uh, this has given me some real new insight into whether or not that is the best thing uh, for us. Well, and there are also the other aspects, this is Bonnie again, of food that you would buy in stores. Obviously, if you're buying produce or products that are grown naturally, you don't have to deal with preservatives, and um, you can have free-range animals um, that you can deal with. And all of those things, of course, the preservatives and all of the things that we do to make things last longer or even, let's say, cosmetically look better. Um, take away from uh, the naturalness of it. And, of course, Barbara Kingsolver and, and Stephen are both uh, very oriented scientifically in terms of their knowledge, so they really understand what they're talking about, as well as doing research. I'm sure they totally understand what they're doing. Anyway, I have someone at the door, but that's what I wanted to say. I'll be listening, though. Okay. Um, another interesting fact that her husband related in the book was that the U.S. Uh, uh, exports... 1.1 million pounds of potatoes each year, and yet we also import 1.4 million. So, uh, you know, at, ask the question, why are we exporting when we need to import them? You know, why aren't we keeping our products here at home? I can certainly see where we would want to share any abundance we have with other countries in need, but uh, why aren't we using what we need here at home? Well, that's probably half of the problem of why we're in so much trouble economically is, is, you know, we're giving everything away and stuff. And, you know, charity begins at home, but that's another subject altogether. But I don't know. I don't ha I, I, I'm sorry to say I did not get to finish the book, but um, um, I just, you know, I, I, I can't believe when, you know, I walk into my local grocery store right down the street, you know, and can get a, a, a cantaloupe, um, you know, on, on New Year's Day. And it's like, I don't want that now. I want to wait until summer when it has some taste to it. And um, anyway, that's, that's all I have to say for that. Hi, this is Ann. Um, Barb and I were talking about that just yesterday. Uh, we've gotten so used to having everything whenever we want it, and it's taken away from that 
old-fashioned thrill when you were growing up of, of getting a blueberry just during blueberry season or, or only getting cherries during cherry season. And uh, there's something to be said about that, to really start thinking about going back to that way of doing things. Well, I think if they, they raise the price of petroleum, you know, they're going to have to. You know what? If they would um, sell just the food that's grown here, here, it would go a long, long way to helping the farmers. And not only that, it might be a little bit cheaper than exporting everything. You know, if they just like... I guess export less of their food and sell it here and um, import less of from other countries. I, I think it would be so much better, so much more economical and maybe um, help a lot of people that are out of work. That's another whole aspect to this question of food. It's not only about going to the grocery store and buying what you're going to eat tonight and put in front of your family uh, for dinner for the next week. Um, it's about the farmers that grew it, how it gets transported, how it gets into your hands, uh, and then the use you make of it. Uh, there's a whole chain here that I think we've lost track of because we think it's almost uh, appearing by magic in the grocery store. And we need to be aware of the farmers it impacts and, and, uh, and that buying locally helps your local farmers. It keeps more money in your local economy as well, uh, a point that the King Solvers raise uh, in the book as well. Well, it's interesting. My sister, there, there's a working, she, my sister lives in Glenview, Illinois, and right at the end of her street is a working farm, and this family all died out and they donated this farm to the city of Glenview so that the school children could come and see where their food came comes from you know and they have cows and they have they grow their crops and things and but the but so many of the kids and and the, 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 I think they went into this in the uh book where a whole generation has grown up having no clue as to where their food came from. They just go to the store and it's all shrink wrap. They don't understand that when they buy, um, you know, a chicken, that it was once a living thing and had to be killed somewhere. You know, another aspect I thought about, too, we have a lot of safety things put in place for when for um, how animals are killed and how food is supposed to be grown, whereas in other countries they don't. And so if we would just, um, uh, uh, just uh, buy the stuff here, I think it might be a little bit more healthy for everybody just because of the safety things that we have in place. Because think of all the things that were recalled and everything. Look at, uh, <clears throat> look at all of the disease, and I'm talking about cancer, heart disease, all of the, the stuff, all of the chemicals. Uh, you know, why is it that um, 
you take, you know, instead of turning corn into um, whatever that stuff's called, fructose or whatever it's called, and, you know, that's what Coke is made out of. And it's all this stuff that they're putting in and aerating the food. It's, it's causing all of this disease that nobody had. You know, we may not have lived as long years ago, uh, but we certainly were healthier. Hi, this is Lisa all the way back east. Um, going back to an earlier point about the short food chain, uh, I raised pigs, and my butcher is three miles down the road, and I know exactly where my meat is coming from. Um, I know how well it's butchered, and I get it very fresh, and it makes a big difference. Oh, it certainly does. I mean, I get pork from this uh, place that I shop from, and I mean, you know, and then I, I'll go back to Cincinnati and have pork at my brother's house, and I go, what am I eating? And they go, well, you know that's a pork chop, and I go, well, it sure doesn't taste like the pork chops I eat. I've heard that from quite a few of my friends also, even who have traveled in, in Europe, uh, that the meat is entirely different. I've heard from some friends from New York that, uh, that they won't even uh, eat meat uh, from this area because it, it just isn't right and they don't know the source of it. Um, it's very disconcerting to them. And I guess the challenge uh, for many people, not just for visually impaired or, or blind uh, citizens, is to know where to get uh, these materials. Uh, you, know, you know, we're lucky here. I think I know of at least three or four farmers markets within a half hour's drive of where I am, but I'm sure it's not like that in every part of the country. Uh, can anyone state anything about uh, farmers markets in their area? Well, there's a farmers market not too far from me, but what was so, so interesting, how I found out about this box greens was I was standing in the produce aisle of the supermarket and I was, had picked up a cantaloupe. And the woman behind me tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, and I had a braille note on my shoulder, and she said, put that melon down and turn your computer on because I'm going to give you a phone number to call to get a much better melon than that. And that's how it all started. Well, how it started for me is I'm diabetic, and I, I had to, I was looking for, a place where I could get um, vegetables because I don't like the stuff I get at my supermarket at Publix, you know. It's not that great. So we found, we looked in the phone book, I had a sighted friend help me, and we found a place that has grows, you know, sells nothing but vegetables and um, it's um, a farmer's market and that's how I found it, and the reason I'm interested in this now is because um, I've had to go off the medicine I'm on because of the side effects and what it does, and I have to go on a different medicine that's not going to be as good, and if I don't eat just whole grain stuff and no refined carbohydrates, I'm going to have to go on insulin, and I don't want to do that. So this is very important to me. That's a great, uh, great point about 
about how all of this really affects our health. You know, it's not just about, you know, finding something to eat when you're hungry. It's not just about, uh, well, what am I putting on dinner uh, on the dinner table in the next half hour because I just got home from work. You know, uh, the, the food we put in our bodies has a great impact on our health, and we, we don't always like to think about the connection, but I think we're forced to. Um, and, and where the food comes from is just as important. Uh, I wouldn't open a can of cat food and set it on my plate and eat it, um, mainly because I don't know what's in it and what it's made out of and where it's from and things like that. But a lot of people don't, don't show a lot more thought than that in what they eat on a daily basis. I have a special guest that's going to join us now. Uh, it's Connor, right? <laughs> and, and Connor is a young gentleman. I've forgotten how old he is. Eight years old. And, uh, and he's with us here as part of the group today. So I'm turning it over to Connor now. Go ahead. My name is Connor Brummett, and I live on a farm. And I just got put on the speaker. I don't really know what to say. So. Well, many people just eat and don't know what they're eating. They could buy anything and they wouldn't know what it is. They would just eat it. Many people don't realize what they're putting in their bodies and that's not very good. The good thing about living on a farm is that you know what's going into you. Thank you, Connor. Uh, I'm, I'm privileged to be friends with Lisa on Facebook, and I see some of the good things you get to eat. I saw uh, some bacon and some pasta and some bread. I think I'm coming over to your house tonight. <laughs> She'll have visitors from out of state, too. Ohio, I think. I'll post directions on the website. <laughs> I don't want you to think that uh, all of what I'm relating from this book uh, are horror stories or terrible statistics. I have to admit, I wrote down a lot of the statistics that just shocked me in the book because I felt they were important for us to talk about. But let me talk about one of the nice things uh, that I read uh, in relation to uh, uh, vegetables and getting them in the hands of the local consumer. Uh, this touches my heart as a library uh, employee because it has to do with an old library bookmobile. Uh, Ms. Kingsolver relates the story, uh, I believe it was from Tennessee, but don't quote me on that, that um, an old library bookmobile was purchased by a farmer's co-op and repurposed as a way to get vegetables into the hands of the local community where uh, they wouldn't normally have had access to a farmer's market. I think that's a great use of an old bookmobile um, still involves burning some gas to get that those vegetables around, but uh, but what a great idea! What do you all think of that? I think it's a great idea. I remember once uh, a family um, who lived on a farm. They had a lot of uh, rooms, so what they did was they bought an old school bus and they used it as uh, it became a playroom for their kids, uh, for their grandkids, their two granddaughters. This was years and years ago, but they took everything off of it. You know, it couldn't move anywhere. It, you know, there was nothing in it except, you know, it was just like one big room. They took out all the seats. They took out all of the mechanisms. You know, it didn't have any gas in it or anything, so no one was going anywhere with it. They just parked it on their land, and um, the kids could keep their toys in there and play in the summertime. 
Well, there is a, a place in Cincinnati, um, outside of Cincinnati, where I have come, that's where I came from, and they had a, they, it was a big farm, and, and uh, they had an extra barn, and they decided to set it up as a roadside stand, and I mean, my goodness, you would just stand there, you know, buying your vegetables, and they'd come in with, you know, bushels full of potatoes, or especially um, they were known for their silver queen corn, and, and you just would watch them pick the, you know, they dump the corn in the bins, and, you know, it, within 10 minutes it was all gone. Because people just would, you know, came from miles around to get this these fresh vegetables. The interesting thing too about corn living on a farm, I see this all the time. Um, my landlord has uh, a machine where he dries out the corn. So there are things. Sometimes nature doesn't really cooperate, and you have a lot of rain. And of course, you can't have crops wet because of the mold. Corn has to be dry. So you can actually put it through this process of drying it, and I've seen him run that machine all day. And I think they do this primarily for the corn that's used for uh, livestock, but, um, you know, because I, I don't know that you would do it for regular corn. And that's the neat thing about farm life. I mean, everything is used and utilized. Nothing is wasted. If there's a purpose for it, if they can find a purpose for it, they do it. Hi, this is Anne. I have not read the book, and I'm just a, a, a bit curious as to what the gist of the I, well, I can get what the gist of the book is about. Obviously, we're talking about local and um, organic uh, farming and, and consumption. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, I've read Barbara Kingsolver's other books, which were fiction, and how she approaches this topic in the, the book. Um, can someone shed some light on that for me? I can give you a brief summary. Uh, basically, uh, as Barbara Kingsolver relates, the family had talked about uh, the project of writing this book for a few years before they actually uh, started it. And the project itself was the vow that the family took that for one year they were only going to eat what they could produce or what could be produced within a short drive of their own home and farm. Um, so they took the vow early in April, I believe, uh, one year. So this was before many of the seasonal crops had come in, and, and they were definitely feeling the pinch in April and May of being restricted to only few items from their garden. Um, but as the year goes along, they not only talk about what it was like to, to live within these restrictions of uh, only eating what was in season at the time, but uh, also talk about visiting other places uh, that have restaurants that are, are solely uh, provided with local resources and visiting other areas of the country uh, that, and what is produced there and, and how their uh, farmers markets are organized. Um, in addition, uh, she goes on to talk, uh, well, her husband and her daughter both talk about their interest in in the nature of eating locally. Uh, her daughter is coming at it mainly from the nutrition standpoint, and her husband, uh, as she likes to call him, is Dr. Science and speaks to the statistics and um, the research about, uh, you know, how things have been genetically modified. So some of, some of his points are, are horrifying to me in terms of 
exactly how much money goes into subsidizing the cheapness of our unhealthy food, um, but I'll encourage you to listen to some of that on your own. Barbara, I'm curious to know, we have so many books like this where people do something for a year. There was one Nancy read about um, something having to do with uh, a man who lived according to uh, li- lived according to Bible laws, for example. And, you know, there are others like that. And I always wonder in these books, and I haven't read this book yet, I, I apologize for that, um, but I've read other Barbara Kingsolver books. What do they decide to do, or do they say at the end of the book what they are planning to do at the end of this year? Uh, as I recall the ending, um, Barbara Kingsolver relates that, surprisingly enough, uh, it ended with, uh, with not a bang but a whimper, as they say. She didn't even record the exact day that marked the anniversary in her journal. It, it passed them by as just the completion of a, a project, not as a, oh, we've been waiting for this day and now we can run out and buy gummy worms and flip-flops and things that we, we've been restricting ourselves from. So she said, you know, they, they've continued on this journey. Maybe they're not quite as, as restrictive as they were during this year, but they've continued on. Um, and based on the website, it sounds as though her husband has been integral in starting a restaurant in their home area that uses uh, produce from the local farmers, uh, which I think that's really interesting. I, I'm definitely going to try and find out if something like that exists here in Pennsylvania. Uh, another idea from the book uh, relates to uh, the idea of the farmer and, uh, and how a lot of farmers have basically stayed alive uh, through catering to certain crops that, that allowed them to have enough of an income to keep the family farm in action. She discusses with a lot of tenderness the fact of farmers that raise tobacco and how this is certainly not an acceptable crop in, in many people's eyes, but uh, when you look at it from the farmer's standpoint, it's, it's hard not to understand that they're doing everything they can to keep the farm in the family in, the, in the, an area when uh, industrial agriculture has really taken over. So the question is, is, is it acceptable to raise tobacco and do they have any other choices? Uh, the King Solver family talked about some specialty products that were raised um, in Kentucky and, and some of the other places they had visited, um, such as shrimp farming, which I didn't even know you could do in Kentucky. Um, but a lot of farmers are raising very specialized products in the hopes that the high prices for those items will keep their farms alive. But she also talks about an unfortunate story of one farmer who pinned his hopes on a bell pepper crop and when the market fell out or he couldn't find a, a, a market for his crop, he ended up plowing uh, the entire lot of bell peppers back into the soil. And that would have to be a heartrending uh, event for any farmer. One of the other things, too, that people don't realize in farming is that some crops take um, a tremendous amount of um, the nutrients from the land. Corn does. Um, and that's one of the reasons that um, crop rotation is so important. So not only do they have to think about what they can grow, but they have to also think about what they can grow this year that they will have to uh, not grow next year or maybe even leaving a, uh, a field uh, fallow for a year 
uh, because of course you want the land to have the nutrients in it to be able to support whatever crop you do grow. And there are people here where I live, they used to have a lot of sheep farmers here. And this has become much more of a, of a grain-oriented area. Um, we do have some dairy farms, but sheep and having wool isn't um, nearly the, the value. The crop doesn't have, I mean, the, the, the wool doesn't have nearly the value it used to. And so a lot of the sheep farms have gone away. And so now they grow uh, grain and alfalfa, hay and uh, wheat um, and soybeans. Um, so we have a lot more of that, but you have a lot more uh, farms that have llamas, and um, I know some people who do some uh, herb, some herbal. I guess it would be considered herbal farming in a sense, herbal gardening. In fact, I know of a lady who has uh, seven different gardens um, that grow different things, and they're all laid out uh, very beautiful. They're really a, a lovely thing to see, and she does them. Uh, in such a way so that they're very architecturally uh, attractive the way they're laid out and it's uh, I've been there and of course I didn't appreciate it because I'm blind but the people that I was with certainly did. Hi this is Lisa. The first year that we had pigs we put them in a specific place on our property so that next year the year after that we could plant and that the vegetables that came out of that garden were fantastic really worked well I mean, everything, the soil was all rooted up, um, it was fertilized, it was, it was a good arrangement. Uh, that's another point that Barbara makes in the book as well, that grazing animals really help re-nourish the soil, and a lot of places that had gone over to farming uh, uh, plant crops, you know, uh, were really better suited to pasturing animals and providing meat for the local meat market because the animals... Um, you know, are in a natural habitat, and, and yes, they do fertilize the soil to a great extent. Instead of taking nutrients out of the soil, which repeated harvestings and repeated crops can do, and then the farmer's forced to replace it, uh, perhaps with chemical uh, fertilizers. One other thing, too, that I just thought of is I was having a conversation with a friend of mine one day about cattle, and one of the things that, that you see differently in different parts of the country is uh, the cattle are very different and uh, in terms of sometimes size or um, some of them are more rangy looking because um, they have different things to eat and they have to be the kind of animals that can acclimate themselves to the climate and to the amount of water and resources available too. We've done a lot of talking about uh, plant and, and vegetable products but uh, Barbara goes on to discuss in the book about uh, heritage animal raising, which I'd never heard that term before about heritage animals, but if you've heard of heirloom tomatoes, it's a similar concept where the animal, uh, the animals that are being raised are from an old breeding stock uh, that has been around for, for years and years instead of um, a new hybridized or specialized or genetically modified um, type of animal. Uh, and she had some very interesting things to say about uh, turkeys and the turkey market, I, I was just shocked. I, I thought turkeys were a very healthy item to eat, even if it was raised by uh, an industrial or larger farm. And some very interesting things were that, that one of the most popular breeds of turkeys has been uh, genetically bred to have huge uh, breast meat on the turkey, but that actually interferes with the turkey's life and health to a great extent. 
even if they lived longer than the typical age at which they harvest them, uh, at some point their legs would begin to give out based on the weight of the actual turkey. Some of those things are culturally based, too. Um, I've, I've been reading a book by Susan Wiggs in which um, there are some Polish characters, and um, they had a thing that they did um, that was passed down from generation to generation uh, called bread starter. And what they did was the original um, elements that you would use to begin to make bread Every time they made bread, a little bit of that dough was passed on to somebody else, and the jar, a, a jar of it was given to somebody so that every woman started out with a little bit of that dough that came from somebody else. And I thought that was a real neat idea, and it's a way to be able to pass down a little of your heritage. I apologize for the phone. So, you know, I've, I've had hard times in my life, you know, where maybe my grocery budget wasn't the most important thing on my mind and I was just trying to make the dollars and the meals uh, stretch you know but I, I have to ask myself now how cheap is cheap food uh, if we're going to end up ruining our health because of it uh, you know it seems as though in America the most important thing is that it be cheap and it be quick and if it doesn't partake of one or both of those qualities we're not really interested in it this is Anne, and I guess I want to go back to the uh, stunning turkey tidbit that Barb just told us about. Um, and it's just, you know, of course I have a dog, and I just, I feel, I've always just felt very <laughs> loving and, and, and humane towards animals. And, um, you know, I, I was reading a book. It's, it's a fiction book. It's, it's uh, by Arlene Fowler. She writes about a rancher in, in California. And um, in this book, she was discussing about uh, a petting zoo that was set up, set up at the state fair for the children and how there was some um, disagreement if there should be a petting zoo or not um, with, with livestock and animals that would become food. And uh, one of the protagonists' theory was that um, children should grow up respecting the animals that even will become their food. And um, I thought that was a pretty profound statement, and it's something that we, we talked about early on in this conversation that, you know, we, in general, are not aware, and we're not having our children be aware of where our food source is coming from, and then add to that um, to be respectful to that food source. I mean, whether their life is long or short, let them have a humane life. Well, that's absolutely right. In conditions where they get to move around enough um, and are able to grow naturally, uh, not in places where they're um, in too closely confined and have no exercise, um, which some which happens a lot with chickens, especially I think, um, and probably other animals too. Yes, I, I recall her stating uh, in the book that. Uh, that even animals that are, are designated as free range, uh, some of the requirements only only are that uh, there be an access door uh, to a pasture or something of that nature. Not that the animal actually has to has time outside necessarily, but there only be a, that there is a door to such free range pasture, whether the animal actually gets out or not. And I also recall um, uh, Steve. 
uh, Barbara's husband stating a fact that in many commercial chicken operations, uh, 1,100 chickens can be crammed into the space of a six by eight foot room. Uh, I have a real difficulty in imagining even a couple hundred in such a small space, much less more than a thousand. Well, one of the problems with, with chickens is that uh, you do, um, chickens are, are not, well, I guess they're not very bright animals, but uh, they're very much the target and prey of uh, other animals that might be around. I have a friend who had gotten some chickens last summer, and um, one day she found that all of them were killed but one by something that got into them. And um, so even if you do, there are reasons, but some of this is just greed, and because people want to have as many chickens as they possibly can and turn them out as quickly as they can without any care for the nutrition of the animal or for the life cycle or for whether an animal is ready to have um, more um, offspring. They just don't think about it because it's all about the almighty dollar, as they say. This is Ann again. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Barbara, or anybody who's, who's read the book, is uh, does, does Barbara Kingsolver touch upon um, genetic alterations of foods and how that may affect food allergies. Um, I'm curious uh, from a personal nature. I have a son who developed a severe corn allergy, but later in life. And it was um, when he was little and ate regular corn, nothing happened. But it was later when we started eating, he started eating more processed foods that this cropped up. And I have read that there could be some linkage, and, I, and I'm curious if that was addressed in the book. Uh, the book was very informative in terms of talking about the differences between hybrids and uh, things that have been genetically modified. It didn't specifically seem to touch on, on food allergies, as, as I recall, but maybe I just wasn't paying attention to, to that particular topic. Um, the thing that was a, a shock for me uh, in reading this book and another book that I read recently, which was entitled uh, Wheat Belly by a Dr. William Davis, uh, was the fact that so much of our, our food that has been hybridized or genetically modified has only really been done in the last 50 years. Uh, and do we really know, is that a long enough period of time to know whether those foods are safe for us to consume or do they have any other side effects? Um, my father, as a farmer, always talked about hybrid varieties of corn and tomatoes as being more disease resistant. And so I thought that that was a, a good thing. But I didn't realize the effects of hybridization on the next generation. Uh, in general, you can't save seed from those plants and use it to create uh, next year's garden. Uh, it won't be true to form and, and could be radically different. Uh, Basically, those uh, those plants have to be created by their their master scientists over and over again each year, instead of saving seeds as as mankind uh, learned to do over the last ten thousand years. In the farmhouse I live in, there's a little room called the seed room, and that that room uh, was specifically used for the farmers who lived here and farmed this land to be able to take the seeds that they had 
and hang them there, you know, to dry, to use out, you know, for the next year. And, uh, of course, I don't do anything like that now, and it's just a room. But it was kind of neat to hear about the process and that it, it played such an important part that they made an actual little room, almost like a little uh, closet-type thing in their house for that purpose. I have a question for, for Lisa, who's here, who um, is, is a local farm woman, and I was just curious if she does anything like that with seeds. Um, not yet, but I would sure like to. Is anybody else doing that right now? Uh, actually, a good friend of mine here in Lebanon who um, is quite an avid gardener and is now volunteering with the Landis Valley Museum is involved in, in the seed saving project over there with heirloom tomatoes. So maybe we can find you some, uh, some good expert help. And I know I want to grow some heirloom tomatoes myself, even if it's only a few patio containers this year. I'm curious too, I, I know I'm probably getting away from the, the meat of the book, but maybe she talks about this in the book. How do you, if you want to start a vegetable garden, say in your backyard, and, and buy plants, how can you be assured that you're not buying something that's been hybridized or mm. genetically altered? Mm. Wow, that, that is a very good question. I don't know if I'm the best person to give an expert answer on that. What I recall from, from the very end of the book when she talks about um, plants that are available um, and things of that nature is that so many of the larger companies all get their stock from major species. Um, so I guess in terms of uh, heirloom tomatoes, I think uh, the heirloom, the term heirloom is, is a safety factor in that you know it's an older species that is designed to be bred from seed, uh, but I think I'll have to look into that and see um, how can you tell with other types of plants whether it's a new variety or, or what the history of a particular variety is. Anyone else have any insights on that? Well, I really don't, but I, I have a question that's related to that. I was wondering if in this book, one of the things I hear about from time to time where I live is that people can no longer find, say, a certain kind of tomato or uh, vegetable. Uh, well, maybe not. Um, I'm not sure whether it's other vegetables, but I mean, there are certain types of tomatoes, for example, that are grown and um, some of these varieties disappear. It's certainly true of apples. I saw a thing on um, CBS Sunday Morning recently about um, how they were trying, there was a guy in Virginia, actually, uh, same state Barbara's in, who was trying to um, bring back and keep alive certain varieties. And I was wondering if in this book she addressed that issue at all and said anything about how many varieties of things actually disappear and we never even know about it. Yes, that, that was a statistic they talked about in the book. Um, I'm trying to recall it right now. Uh, I know that she had said at one point that a researcher had stated that mankind has gone from eating over 80,000 different kinds of foods to almost having eight main species of foods that we rely on for, for our sustenance at this point in time. Um, I will state here, uh, as a good library school has taught, that uh, if I'm misquoting Miss Kingsolver in any way, I apologize, and the fault is entirely mine. Well, folks, I, I think we're on, um, on the end of the book group as we have it. I have a few little tidbits for you yet. I have a little treat uh, that Anne is going to read to you from the book. 
If you have the chance to go to uh, Barbara Kingsolver's website that is the companion to this book, uh, which is at animalvegetablemiracle.com, she has a number of recipes there which look fabulous, uh, one of which I just have to try, which is a chocolate chip cookie recipe that involves hiding zucchini in the batter. I think that's a great way to get your vitamins uh, and get your vegetables, just like pumpkin pie is a very fine way to get a vegetable into your diet. Uh, but in addition to that, I thought as a treat, I would ask Anne to read this recipe uh, for those of you who might be interested in it. So I'm going to turn this over to Anne uh, for the melon salsa recipe. Okay, here we go. Melon salsa. This makes six generous servings, and the ingredients that you will need are one medium cantaloupe, one red bell pepper, one small jalapeno pepper, one half medium red onion, one quarter cup fresh mint leaves, one to two tablespoons of honey, and two teaspoons of white vinegar. After you get your ingredients together to prepare the salsa, dice melons and peppers into quarter inch cubes, finely mince the onion and mint, toss this with honey and vinegar, allow to sit at least one hour before serving over grilled chicken breast or fish fillet. Mm. Well, I hope you folks enjoyed that. I, I wanted that as a, as a nice ending to our, our discussion today because I know so many of the points we raised are difficult to talk about, sometimes even scary. And while I think it's important to talk about the scary points so that the importance of eating locally and eating uh, and paying attention to your food is, is uppermost in your mind, um, still, it's about food. It's uh, supposed to be about fun, as a good friend of mine reminded me today. It's not all about rules. Sometimes it's about enjoying life and enjoying the food that God put here for us. Uh, if anyone else has any other questions or statements, uh, please chime in. I just want to mention that, of course, in agriculture, there are other books like this. I remember, um, well, this book is not really like this. I shouldn't say that. But I read a book a number of years ago called Agricide. And if I don't remember who the author was, but if you really want to get scared about how meat is uh, produced and taken care of in the production um, of that, it is, uh, it's really one scary, terrifying book. The only problem with, the, with these kinds of books, with that one especially, is, of course, this is not just a, a true crime situation that happened to somebody else and it never affects you. It affects us because everyone eats meat unless you're a vegetarian. So, But uh, someone I knew at the time wanted me to read it, and I said, well, I don't think I'll be up nights <laughs> avidly wanting to read this thing. But I made myself get through it, and I some of it was over my head. It's very scientifically oriented, but there are books like that. The only thing I would say is when you read these books, take them with a grain of salt. I wouldn't want anyone to become so involved with them that people worry overly much. I think the most important thing we have to do is enjoy life and do what we can to, to eat healthfully and to, to do the best we can and to eat the best way we know how. And uh, if you look for uh, something under every rock, uh, you'll find it. And yes, it's terrible, 
And the problem is that we feel powerless and there isn't much we can do about it except in our own lives and what we grow and in, if we can and in what we choose to buy. I just want to say that um, I want to read the book and so I hope at the end you'll tell us uh, where we can get the book uh, because I, I'd like to read it and um, um, I, I've enjoyed this discussion. I like, I have to do this because for my health, I, I mean, I think I said that earlier. Um, but I also want to, um, uh, when I said I thought things were safer in this country, I hadn't read the book yet. So I guess I should have read the book before I made that statement. Um, but also, I saw a report uh, from about one of the uh, major um, food chains that sells um, natural foods and organic foods that they were importing a lot of their stuff from China and um, but they weren't telling the public that and and um, the way things are grown in China it's there's no guarantee that it's really organic and they were telling people that it was organic when it was imported from China. And so that's what made me make the statement that I made. Uh, that's a, a great point about the difficulty. Uh, certainly it's difficult in this country with the number of regulations to make heads or tail of what's going on when you're a farmer or in the production of food, uh, involved in the production of food. But the opposite's also true, like you just said. Uh, if we don't know where it's coming from or whether there were any rules and regulations followed in its production, how safe do we know that it is? Uh, you know, we've just recently had outbreaks of salmonella uh, based on vegetable crops. And for years, I never knew you could get salmonella from ever anything other than raw chicken meat. So that that's a shock to me that that, that can be spread through um, through uh, our plant harvest as well. Um, I would uh, advise if you'd like to listen to this book that it is available from the National Library Service uh, on digital cartridge I believe as well as digital download. Uh, I did check that all the books that we're going to be having um, in the Vision in the Valley series this year are available on Bookshare, on the National Library Service and also from audible.com. Uh, of course I have to recommend that you always check with your local library to see if they can provide you with it as well. Barb, I want to thank you for inviting me to participate in this. I um, really enjoyed the discussion, and I am very much looking forward to reading the book. My interest certainly has been piqued. Thanks. This is Bonnie again, and for Accessible World, I guess I'm representing us today in a semi-official way. I would like to thank Barbara, Neil, and Ann Hall for coming here today and for doing this discussion. And next time, hopefully, we will have adequate time to be able to read the next book we're going to do. Happily for us, um, this has been a wonderful relationship since we first did the help. And we will be doing this, as I understand it, six times this year. So. In a couple months, I'm sure we'll be, we'll be getting together again. And I want to thank all of you from the Lebanon County Library and Vision in the Valley 
the Anvil Branch and Richland, which I think was not here, for being interested in doing this with us and being so involved in library work and love of books, which I always support. And we certainly thank you for your agreement and for this wonderful relationship we've built. Thank you, Bonnie. We appreciate having this venue in which we can share our love of reading and books with people across the country. And I, I do want to uh, mention what our next book will be. Um, the next book discussion will, will be April 12th, and Barb has chosen the book 1968, The Year That Rocked the World, by Mark Kurlansky. That's spelled K-U-R-L-A-N-S-K-Y. And um, we'll be notifying um, uh, Bob and Accessible World um, about this. Um, and you can also find it listed on our website as well. Barb, did you have anything else to say about that? Um, just a, a brief note about that title. As I mentioned again, um, that was uh, 1968, the year that rocked the world. That is available on Bookshare on the National Library Service website for download or also uh, from audible.com uh, and possibly from your local libraries. So you've got the first tidbit about it and we will be sending out a newswire so that we get a reminder in your hands closer to the time, but that will be on April 12th. We're planning on having all of our book group discussions on the second Thursday of the month when we're planning to have them. We're not going to do every month, but um, but April will be our next month, so the second Thursday in April is April 12th. It'll be 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and I'll make sure to have all the time zones listed in the newswire. Thank you again for joining us. Barbara and Ann, before you go, would you like to leave any information about uh, your library website or email addresses of any kind that you would like us to be able to look up should we choose to do so? Uh, yes. Please feel free to email me personally here at my work email, which is circdesk, and I'm going to spell that for you, C-I-R-C-D-E-S-K at L-C-L-I-B-S dot org. That partakes of our library website, which is www lclibs.org and I'll spell that for you again www.lclibs.org that is our main website and there's a subsidiary page called Vision in the Valley if you look for that link under the Lebanon Library you will be able to find all the updates relating to our online book group and I'll make sure to have a link to our page from within the, the news bulletin that goes out from Accessible World as well. Thank you so much. I hope to hear any comments you have from me. Well, thank you, Barbara and Anne and Lisa for being here and being able to tell us about farming as farm wives really live it. It's a tough life, and it's uh, one that uh, gets very little attention, uh, long days, and uh, you're out in all weather. I see people do it and I, I know it's I know it is a very tough life 
I think this is a very timely subject. I'm glad you've been able to all be here today to hear and be a part of this, and uh, I'd like to thank everyone for coming. I will close out the recording, and thank you all for being here. This is, uh, because I didn't say it in the beginning, uh, January, I think it's January 12th of 2012, and this is the end of the Accessible World Book Discussion with the Lebanon County Library. Thanks. Thank you again, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Well, thank you.